0: It's another blessed occasion we have been given to gather, to assemble in the way that we are this evening, and to do so with the appreciation of doing that which the Heavenly Father has described, and which you and I can engage for our betterment, but certainly first and foremost to honor, to adore, and to offer our worship to the great God that made us, and that in fact has prepared, or is preparing that marvelous and wonderful eternal abode for those that are His children. As we come together tonight during this portion of our service, you probably can already tell the title on the wall behind me, the one that I've selected, with the hope that that will in many ways be a guiding theme throughout the lesson this evening. Let me, in fact, share some introductory thoughts to prompt us in our thinking, and then we'll simply move in to some of those considerations. Sin. Three letters. But I suspect, if you, at least you're like me, it's a term you don't really hear that often. When's the last time you saw a newspaper article use the word? When's the last time you heard it in conversation? When's the last time you maybe heard it over the radio, television, perhaps on an internet website, something presented over the cell phone? My suspicion is, it's probably not a term that we hear very often, It's not a term that certainly is as common or prevalent as it once was. And that in many ways was the guiding theme for some of our consideration this evening. For you see, the Word of God hasn't changed. What it said 50 years ago, what it said 100 years ago, what it said nearly 2,000 years ago hasn't changed in the slightest. And yet sometimes culture changes, the perspectives of people change, and in many ways that is one of the greatest dangers that the people of God face. I'll have more to say about that as we move through the lesson tonight, but I'd just like you to begin to keep those things in mind. How easy it can be, at least gradually, for one's perspective on certain things to change, to look at them differently, to accept what once was abhorrent, to embrace what once was not even considered. And yet, it doesn't happen overnight. But how slowly almost imperceptibly, but yet it comes to be a reality. In many ways, there's also an additional sadness. I wonder how often it's been since we've heard the word sin, even in religious circles. Now, I know here in our Bible studies and even in our uh, sermons, we try to use the word as God would have us to do it, because it does occur rarely often in the Bible. But look at this next slide, if you would. I've asked you to think about some of the ways that the human family has sought to remove responsibility, to remove personal accountability, to avoid concepts like iniquity and sin, to look upon them, and in fact, we have become so good at it that we use different terminology to describe what plainly is sin. There's a listing I've given there which is by no means complete. You probably can think of additional examples, but have you ever thought about something like this? Rather than call it murder, we'll call it mercy killing. And that may well be the way you'd see it, written in a a newspaper article. But you'll notice how conveniently we avoid the word murder. Rather than call it abortion, it's a choice. That sure doesn't sound anything like a killing, does it? It's a woman's right to choose. And who are we to tell her what she can or cannot do? Really? A choice? A choice? Look at the third one. What about suicide? Now, I realize we can sure paint some rather challenging pictures relative to a topic like that, but could I just offer the thought? We again choose in many instances not to use that word. It's dying with dignity. It's letting that person dictate his or her own removal or departure from this earth. You see how we often can rephrase it in ways that sounds so much softer, so much more easy, if you please. In the fourth case, what about homosexuality? Long since the prime word there is gay. And that word was once used for happiness. It was used for liveliness. It was used for what was so positive. And now we use that to term this lifestyle that is against God don't you find it interesting in all these cases and again many others how that we take this which is a sinful matter and yet we rephrase it we repurpose it we call it something different look at the fifth one don't you find this one intriguing and so a man again steps out on his on his wife or a woman on her husband and we don't call it adultery it's an affair And don't you know that that word we often have used, or at least in the way it was typically a part of our language, it described this was not only positive, but it described what frankly was often a desirable thing. And yet, we're using it to describe adultery. In the next case, what about the colorful language that we sometimes hear? To speak like a sailor. And that's nothing but plain old profanity. It's nothing but language that God doesn't approve. Whether it be the the considerations of these others we've mentioned, or even our language, kind of interesting how that we can choose these colorful words to describe it that seems to remove the urgency from it. Lying is sometimes simply presented as misinformation. Well, that's sure seemingly leaving some things out of it. For a person to deliberately lie, it's not merely the fact they don't have information. They did have it and chose to share something different. The final one I mentioned, fornication. You and I again recognize how often the Word of God makes use of that term, and yet in our day, it's so often repurposed under the banner of love. This man and woman love one another, but they're not married. In fact, they may be married to someone else, and we call it love. Love. You see, regardless which one of these you look at, or again, perhaps others you can consider, it's all the same. And it's the topic of tonight's lesson. Sin can be so deceptive. And obviously the devil, of course, presents it that way to color over some of these things so that they don't seem as serious as they really are. And they don't seem as urgent as they really are. And they don't seem as bothersome as they really are. And yet, as the devil is a master, again, at conveying that kind of information, at making those kinds of thoughts come our way, isn't it fair to say that if the devil can bring into your mind and mine a slight movement of the what is regarded as the center, slide it off to the left just a little bit, it won't take very long before that now becomes the norm. And suddenly he's won. Because what once was abominable, what once was abhorrent, what's one was clearly against the Word of God, is now at least by and large accepted. May I point out all of us as Christians thus have an unwavering standard, but it's our chore, our charge, and our loving goal to main, remain consistent always with it. It is for that reason I thought I would divide the lesson tonight into several things beginning on the next slide. And it's my intent to help each of us, using the Word of God, just to be reminded about how sin is described. Though man may try to whitewash it so that it seems and looks much better than it really is, the Bible has never changed. Its presentation has stayed the same, its description has stayed the same, and those guilty of it have ever more in the pages remained exactly the same once for exactly the same reason. May I point out to you first, sin is popular. Now that's not new, that's no revelation to any of us. It's popular. Let's develop that thought, perhaps basically, and then let's follow it with the word promoted. So both with the letter P, first popular, second promoted. You and I realize that when something is popular, it is not only endorsed, but there are multitudes who run after it. It is pursued because there is a great desire for it. It is perceived to be something that is nice to have or in which one might engage because it offers what satisfies. It offers what is deemed to be satisfactory. And yet, isn't it interesting how so often the Word of God describes it in that way? And it's not only the New Testament era. In Isaiah 30, verse 1, "...the children of Israel added sin to sin." They were in a position, you see, to want more of it because it's what they like to do. Under that day and time, you and I recall that the worship of God was seen to be rather narrow. And whereas if they were able to offer their obeisance to various gods, well, they could do many other things which appeal to the flesh, and that's what they liked. And yet as Isaiah penned those words in Isaiah 30, they added sin to sin. So you'll notice, and it's still the case, that quite often one sin will rather naturally move one in a direction to give some greater intensity to another one. Surely that's true in lying. You tell one lie, and you're probably going to have to tell another one to cover up the first one. And if you do something that you ought not do, and someone finds out about it, now you've got to lie so that you try to cover that one up. It seems to be an issue that rather notably proceeds. I've asked you to notice in Zephaniah 3 verse 7, again, speaking about the children of Israel, they rose up early to corrupt all their doings. The God of heaven identified and described them in that way, whereas you might think a little sin is bad enough, and yet they seemingly got up early by God's own description so that their full day could be filled with it. A little wasn't enough. Isn't that sad to think about those that ought to have been so devoted as the people of God and yet they were described in ways like this. In Micah 7 verses 2, 3, and 4, there's a description about my people are like a briar because they're given to sin. It pricks and sticks and it is very uncomfortable but yet they don't see it. They have become comfortable with it. And isn't that the danger? That you've finally become comfortable with it it doesn't bother your conscience anymore it doesn't like cause you to in fact be upset it doesn't stir you anymore you've accepted it you'll notice in the next set of ideas those i mentioned earlier are not the only ones in jeremiah 51 5 god in fact very late in jeremiah's ministry he pointed out the whole land is full of sin It's as if the grand culture as a whole had turned its attention to the pursuit of what God said is sinful. That was sad, wasn't it? Jeremiah, that great prophet of God, had labored for so long to encourage and to teach, and yet it seems as if it really hadn't fallen in many ways on receptive ears. Isn't that an innocent reminder to all of us today? Though we preach the truth and we strive to live by it, And though we encourage others by various ways to have interest in it, we may have little success in the eyes of humanity. But God told Jeremiah, you keep preaching it. And thankfully he did. You and I noticed today one last verse is Hosea 4 verses 1 and following. There the prophet Hosea again described a day and a time among those that ought to have known better And yet the land is described as being filled with iniquity. As you and I at least keep our compass always geared toward the things of God, therein lies an issue when you and I use a compass to direct our way. You know, it follows the magnetic field lines of earth and it's supposed to point to us to that which is regarded as north. You and I need a compass that always points to this and uses it as a standard, and so when we use a compass, if over time we've allowed it gradually to be recalibrated so that it points to something else, we're in serious trouble. We no longer will stand steadfast for what we once did. How many examples can you think of among the people of Israel, and even others regarded in the Bible, who found themselves in situations like this? In Genesis chapter 6, 7, and 8, A record is given to us about that which was the day and times of Noah. Though Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord, Genesis 6 verse 8, three verses earlier we had been told that the thoughts of every man's heart was only evil continually. Now that kind of phraseology is strong. To think that the rank and file person only thought about what was evil participated in what was evil, acted in regard to what was evil, and yet here was Noah standing out as a beacon of truth, a beacon of rightness in the midst of those who had little interest in what he was talking about or preaching. It would seem that Noah was a great example then at that point at least of one who still understood that though that's popular, I'm not going to follow it and I will not turn my attention to it. Not only could we mention Noah, I've invited you to think about the scene of Genesis 19, verses 1 and following. There it was Sodom and Gomorrah. Later on in Jeremiah 5, verse 1, how strong is this description? God told Jeremiah, take you a lamp and you find one person in Jerusalem. Find me one. The impressiveness would appear to be that God knew there wasn't even one. Isn't that a reminder to each of us that those who follow the Lord often have found themselves in the minority? Because you see, sin is popular and following God in most instances is not. May I add to that this? In Numbers chapter 13 and 14, though God had been so good to the children of Israel and brought them out of Egyptian captivity and in fact at that time had led them in safety through some number of years of the wilderness wandering. Twelve spies were sent out, and ten of them came back and said, we just can't take it. Though that is a land that's just as we had heard of it, we are unable to conquer it. You'll notice at that point, 603,550 fighting men had left Egypt. And of that number... Two of them entered Canaan. Two. Would you think about those numbers? The ratio of two to 603,550. Wouldn't you agree the minority were the ones? It was Joshua and Caleb. They were the ones who had remained steadfast and true to the declaration of heaven. And they were the only ones permitted. Even Moses didn't enter it. Even Aaron didn't enter it. It was only those two. At that point, let's close that slide with these observations. And thus, there's a host of warnings given to all of us, just as they were given to folks back then. Thou shalt not follow a multitude to do evil. Exodus 23, verse 2. The multitude will be the one doing evil. That's what their mind will be on. It'll be motivating their pursuit, and yet don't you follow them. Wouldn't it be fair to say, in First Corinthians 15:19, we have these unforgettable words in the New Testament. Be not deceived. Evil communications corrupt good manners. If you hang around with, if you allow the perspectives of those who are of an evil mindset, long enough in conversation with them, you will probably adopt some of the way that they think, and your behavior will become no better than theirs. That's why it's so important to choose one's friends wisely and carefully. Choose one's associates with great care. It might well be to note that worldliness as described in the pages of the New Testament is certainly a rampant matter. In James 4 verse 4, we each are reminded, just as were they of that time, that you and I should appreciate that those who would make themselves friends of the world are enemies of God. And so if you and I become too friendly with the world so that it motivates our thinking and guides our appreciation, that will easily move into the other arenas of our life, and we suddenly will find ourselves a worldly character just like those around us. I suppose in all those things, we could then say, didn't Jesus remind us, the world hated me and it will hate you, John 15, 19. The apostle of love, John, put it like this in 1 John 3, 13, Marvel not, my brethren, if the world hate you. We shouldn't find it shocking or surprising because we ought not be thinking the way they think. We don't talk the way that common language is. And we don't lift high the banner of the things that is often viewed as of prime importance. So far, the two words we've looked at began with the letter P. How about we pick a different letter and look at another pair of words. This time, it's these two. The letter S. What else is sin? Sin is not only promoted, and it's not only popular, but it's also sickening, and it's also shameful. And this is the part, of course, that must ever be kept before our thinking because we never want sin to become too appealing to us. Let's develop some of these in the ways I've asked you to notice. First of all, it would be in fact completely wrong to say that sin has no pleasantness and there's no enticing character to it. That would be foolish. In fact, in Hebrews 11.25, the inspired Hebrew writer said, speaking of Moses, He chose rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. Doesn't that at the very least insist upon us the thought that sin does have its pleasantries? It will appeal in some way to the flesh. It will appeal in some way to the appreciation of the human frame, either by way of lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, or the pride of life. 1 John 2 verse 16. But to say that it appeals to them is to also say this. How long will the enjoyment that comes from that last? The Word of God says it's for a season, a short time, only a while. And therein lies the catch. The devil can dangle the carrot of sin before us, and for a little while we're interested in pursuing it because we only see for such a short distance if we pause long enough to think about the future and what that will bring and what's going to happen in the distant days as a result of it, likely, almost certainly, our approach would be very different. The pleasures of sin. Have you ever thought about the nature of what that phrase meant with respect to Moses? Moses chose rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin. May I ask, Who were all those engaging in sin? It apparently was the Egyptians. That's where Moses was when he made the deliberate choice to pursue after those who were his brethren. And in so doing, he made a choice not to pursue the pleasures of sin. How nice it would have been in the Pharaoh's palace how nice it might well have been in that arena wherein all the matters of the flesh could have been pursued and all the satisfaction and adequacy would have easily been fulfilled. And Moses said, no. I hope you and I have that kind of courage. I hope you and I have that kind of steadfastness. The next verse I invited you to consider on that slide is the very one that's our lesson text. Could I invite you to revisit that text But the dentist read in our hearing earlier? Early on in the book of Jeremiah, God in speaking said in Jeremiah 3.25, We lie down in our shame, and our confusion covereth us. Let's pause long enough to note this. We, as God was directing the thoughts and speaking on behalf of the children of Israel, what had they done? They had lain down in their sin. They were wallowing in it they had pursued the consideration of it we lie down in our shame and our confusion covers us sin will produce confusion won't it the mindset and the conscience that once was so firmly understanding of something and now there's a twist now i'm accepting or at least not opposing what once i did You can easily imagine how that could be confusing. Have you ever known a child who might well ask of his or her parents, Dad, Mom, there was one time we did this. We don't do that anymore. What changed? Dad, Mom, there was a time we never used to do that. Now we are. What changed? Maybe that husband and wife never missed a church services at one time, and then the time came that they began to miss. Daddy, Mom, what's different? Why don't we go on Wednesday night anymore? Why don't we go on Sunday night anymore? Is that not important anymore? I suppose it would be hard for dad or mom to offer any kind of coherent explanation of that. But otherwise, isn't it fair to say, sin does bring confusion. But you'll also notice the shamefulness connected to it is highlighted in the very words of God Himself. As you continue on that slide with me, It's certainly not all that uncommon, then, to to view sin as something that really is a bit undesirable, but it's not really all that bad. That's the way our land wants to portray it. Oh, you have your choices, and other people have their own, and they might choose what once was regarded as sin, but let's face it, don't make such a big deal out of it. Therein lies the problem. When man refuses to call sin, sin, then it becomes what's accepted by the masses. And it becomes what is no longer a sore spot for the majority. And it becomes what is thus embraced in so many ways. That's why God admonished those Levites, you preach it the way I delivered it. And in Deuteronomy 33, verses 5 and following, that was their chore. You preach it the way I delivered it. Is anything different about that today? Is that premise still in place? As you close that slide with me, there's another word that's a part of that title. I use that word sickening, and I chose that purposefully. Now, when you and I think about something that's sickening, it's very disturbing. It causes your stomach to turn. It may well cause you to regurgitate. Well, in this case... Don't you find it amazing how the Lord described the church at Laodicea in Revelation 3? There was a congregation, as far as the various activities in which they were engaged, they had just simply become a bit too worldly. And Jesus said, You make me sick. I wish you were either hot or cold, one or the other, but you're lukewarm. You're trying to straddle the fence. And I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. It made the Lord sick. Sin, you see, is not a palatable thing to the Lord. It's not merely allowing it to take place and just to look the other way. The Lord hates it. It causes sickness. And don't you realize that when He died on the cross, He has in view thus the recognition of what we ought to look upon sin to be. It's that bad. That word sickening perhaps brings us to Luke 16, verse 28. I wonder if you and I could right now ask the rich man, what would he say? Would he say that sin's a bit on the sickening side? To think about where he now is awaiting that amazing second coming of the Lord. Not only that, I've also invited you to note Mark 9, verses 43 to 48, where Jesus Himself described this place. It's a lake burning with fire and brimstone. And it's a place where the worm never dies and the fire's never quenched. And somehow we're supposed to think that sin's not serious? That sin's not an important thing? The Lord was quick to tell us a very different matter, wasn't He? So far we've looked at the word P and now the word S. What about one more? And the lesson will be yours. The last letter is D. And it brings us back full circle. Sin is deceptive and it's also deadly. Let's develop that deceptive part of this and use it as a way to encourage ourselves that we not be deceived. There is a tremendous temptation to rationalize our own behavior. We're all guilty of this. I'm accustomed to doing something, and no doubt you are as well, and I've been used to doing it this way, and it's my perspective, and I'm comfortable doing it this way. And someone has a different viewpoint, and they challenge me to, maybe that's not the right way to do it. Maybe it's not the best way to do it. Maybe it's not God's way to do it. And my first temptation is to rationalize, well, look, i got reasons to do it this way. I justify in my own mind my own approach. May I suggest to each of us how eternally dangerous that is. Mm -hmm. You see, if we ever then reach the time where that conscience has become seared, in the words of 1 Timothy 4, verses 1 and 2, they had a seared conscience, Paul wrote, and thus the gospel, it seems, due to their own choice, is going to have a hard time reaching them. If we allow ourselves to have that seared conscience, even if we read it, we're probably just going to bypass it, we'll overlook it, we'll offer some explanation to remove ourselves from accountability. And that's the problem. God's Word says some things are sinful, and it doesn't matter what I think about it, it's still sinful. And nothing is ever going to change that. Despite how my conscience, I may have tried to soothe it, I may have tried to make it easy, I may have tried to soft soap it so that it just sounds so palatable. And yet through it all, sin is deceptive. In Luke 18, verse 11, Jesus said that. He pointed out directly in that discussion, having to do with the rich man, uh, or not the rich man, but rather the publican and the Pharisee, the deceptiveness, the deceitfulness that goes with sinful description, even beyond that. I've offered you these thoughts. That third line, as well as the one before it, sometimes there's another temptation that is a bit of a matter to you and me. Have you ever heard someone say, well, I'm not as bad as he is. I'm not as bad as she is. At least I'm not guilty of what she's doing. You see, we try to compare ourselves to somebody else. That is never a safe standard. She could be wrong. Maybe you both go to hell. Is that what you want? To hide behind someone else's failures is not to expose your own in any better way. You see, the perfect standard is what's in the Word of God. It is that which should serve as our mirror, James 1, verse 25. And when we look into that perfect law of liberty, it can identically show to us what is the truth and the factual matter of the situation. Certainly in that light, that third statement then reads like this. You and I, in many instances, have come to expect... And to think that there are many circumstances in which folks get away with things. Well, look what they do. Look what he's done. Look what she has chosen to do, and they get away with it. And isn't it true? That's one of the great dangers connected to the church, because a little leaven will leaven the whole lump. That's why one sin cannot deliberately be allowed to go unpunished or at least can't be brought to the person's attention. For if so, surely someone else will at least be motivated in the way of evil by the fact that sin went unchecked. That's why in our families, in our own individual lives, we have to realize that sin is sin. And because people call it something different or that society looks upon it differently, it doesn't change what it is. Sin is not only deceptive, as you can see at the top of that slide, it's also deadly. And one more time, the words found in the Bible are so readily those which come to mind. In Numbers 32 verse 23, God speaking through Moses said, Be sure your sin will find you out. May you and I never somehow think that it will be undiscovered. In Luke 12, verses 1 to 5, God directly said, On that day, things are going to be brought to bear. That which men may have thought was was concealed, it won't remain that way. I suppose the verse that's already leaped to the forefront of your thinking is the verse that is Romans 6, verse 23, The wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. As simple as that sounds, as direct as that is, how powerful and profound the wages, the the unquestioned consequences of, the certain eventuality of sin is death. With that said, let's close our lesson with that reminder from James chapter 1. And I'll begin with the thoughts of verse number 13. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. And so you may have noted that there's a certain development, a certain movement, it starts with the excitement of one's lust. What do I want? What do I prefer? What would I desire to be the case? And so that temptation, as it excites that lust, it then is able to lead to sin. And that sin, when it's all said and done, will produce death. Tonight, we've looked somewhat at the deception, the deceit, if you please, that goes with sin. As you and I close our lesson a very brief set of conclusions that wraps up some of that which you and I had seen. First, three pairs of words with similar letters beginning each one. We began by noting that the human family has gotten fairly good at trying to overlook some of the urgency of sin by calling it various names, trying to soften it or smooth it over. But isn't it true that sin is popular and it's also promoted? Not only that, we learn that sin is both shameful and sickening to the God of heaven. It's not that way to mankind, at least in general, but it is to God. And then finally, most recently we learn that it's both deceptive and deadly. We recognize in Ephesians 2 verses 1 and 2 that a person can be dead in trespasses and sins. That is to say, you've chosen to follow this walk of life that is sinful, and as such, you have become spiritually dead. You may be physically alive, to be sure, but you're spiritually dead. And what a a terrible situation to be in. Tonight, in this assembly, may each of us, with care, analyze ourselves and ever desire to understand that sin is sin and to ever keep our conscience so that our compass is directed to the way God has organized and defined it, so that we're always living in the way that He would have wished us us to do it. We're going to offer a song of encouragement. And as we do that at this time, we offer that invitation so that if there be anyone in this assembly that might have a desire to come forward in a public way, we'd like to make that opportunity available. It may be a situation where you just would wish for prayers. Maybe you're facing a particularly difficult situation in life. And it's not that you're confessing sin particularly, but you would like prayers of these brethren to help face that circumstance. We'd be delighted to pray for you. It could be, though, that as a child of God, you have become wayward. You have thus failed to see some of the attributes concerning sin, and maybe you've begun to live in ways that are shameful at least as God would describe it. We want you to know that God still loves you. And He invites you to come back to the side of His Son. And we'd be honored tonight to take note of your acknowledgement of sin by way of confession and your repentance of it, and we would pray along with you. If, however, you've never become a Christian, what better night than the 12th day of March, 2023? In so doing, your spiritual birthday could be that day your name etched into the Lamb's book of life. And if you'll live faithfully till death, heaven will be yours. But that involves your belief in Jesus, the repentance of your sins, the confession you see of the greatness of the Lord's name and and His nature as the Messiah, and being buried in baptism for the remission of your sins. Tonight, if we could be of any assistance in these ways, won't you please let us know how we might do that? And do it at once while together we stand and while we sing.